papermen meet such interesting people. They know the lowdown, now it can be told. I'll tell you quite reliably off the record about some charming people I have known. For I meet politicians and grafters by the score. Killers, plain and fancy, it's really quite a bore. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. They wallow in corruption, crime and gore. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, city desk. Pull the press, pull the press. Extra, extra, read all about it. It's a mess meets the test. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. It's wonderful to represent the press. Now you remember Mrs. Sadie Smuggery. She wanted money to buy a new fur coat. The Media Project is underway. It is a half hour where we talk about finding and telling the truth. That's the task of journalists, and we welcome you to join us. I'm Rex Smith, your host here with Rosemary Armeo, Barbara Lombardo, and Judy Patrick, veteran journalists all with a range of experiences, but we've been around, as they say. We're wise, seasoned, <laughs> oh, seasoned. long in the tooth, as we say at the race course. <laughs> yes. I don't know what you guys are talking about. <laughs> right. <laughs> we'll do what we can. Hey, those students, we talked last week about the uh, student newspaper at Northwestern University, in effect, bringing down the football coach. And now it's happened again. Uh, the Stanford University president, Mark Tessie Levine, had to uh, resign uh, and retract three decades-old research papers after a review of his scientific work was done at the instigation, basically as a result of reporting by the Stanford Daily, the student uh, newspaper. So uh, they're learning some good things there, right? I wish I had students like that. Mm. That would make my day. They did fabulous investigative reporting. Yeah. Yeah, this reporter's name was Theo Baker, who is the son of uh, Peter Baker, the New York Times reporter, and Susan Glasser, the wonderful re- writer from the New, York, the New Yorker. And let's be clear, he did it as a freshman. And yeah. he did a follow-up in the middle of July, which most college students are out on the and ocean. The You're at yep. the beach or yep. climbing a mountain. So you know, kudos to them. It's, it was, it's a very brave story to to take, take on, on a president. the president of Stanford. Well, it, it takes such a background, such an understanding of academic research, right, that it was is beyond the capacity, really, of most students or most journalists, generally speaking. Uh, very impressive. Yeah, he won a Polk Award for this in the spring, so the awards have come his way, and he seems to be a humble, modest kid who's out there on social media thanking people who are recognizing it's his It's like work. Ronan Farrow, another great investigative reporter working on the Me Too movement. Having famous parents somehow gives you confidence and the bravery to take on a giant story that I don't tend to see in a lot of students. Also, the idea that if the administration is hitting back, as they do at UAlbany, we hear whenever our students are putting in an FOI or asking questions that are considered inappropriate, you know you've done it right. So kudos, and we need more of them. Absolutely. Just his own comment was, more than anything to me, he says, this should raise conversations about the value of student journalism. This is the young student himself. If you love a place, and I really do love Stanford, he said, you want to push it to be more transparent. So how about that? 
kudos to the students. Great kid. All right. Since you all are teachers and I have not been, I, but let's say a word for journalism professors who are doing what they can to uh, help people understand the, the great value of journalism, as we say, finding and telling the truth, which is the fundamental charge here. I know. When he does something like that, it makes you think that every college should have a paper like that yep. with, with reporters doing that, but that's just not the case. I mean, this is, this is an exception. This is stellar work, and it's not something that's happening at every college and university. They're trying. Not every college or university has a paper even anymore, so let's just keep rewarding the good work that we're and seeing. And when we use the word paper, we don't necessarily mean paper. We you don't. know, we mean a, a, because it's actually cheaper now to do this than having to put out a print product. Right, you're putting out a news product. Mm -hmm. And I would hold up these two examples for my students at UAlbany as look at what you can do to hold administrators accountable, to mm -hmm. hold people in power accountable. Absolutely. It's a good thing. So here's an ethical issue, folks, because we like to talk about ethics. There is some industry-wide conversation these days. Actually, it's been going on for many years about what we have always referred to negatively as checkbook journalism, the practice of actually paying your sources, paying people to talk to you. First off, let's just say, why do we denigrate that idea? What's wrong with that from the get-go? Well, you're not supposed to be selling the information if a journalist is buying information, it makes it automatically suspect. It does and it, although the deeper you think about it, everything you're told by anyone, for free or for pay, could be suspect. But there's something dirty. Something feels dirty. I'll tell you the story, but you have to pay me. Mm -hmm. There's, there's at the, at the very least, problem. the appearance of impropriety. If the information were something important to be gotten, you would get it without paying somebody. And doesn't it also advantage those news organizations or those journalists who can afford to do that? Yeah. I was always annoyed when I'd be talking to someone and they would say, is there value in it for me? And I'm thinking, well, you've been tainted by television journalists. 60 Minutes would, oftentimes this was concealed, right? 60 Minutes would label somebody as a consultant on a project, yep. uh, and that person would end up being on camera. I've never done it. Have, have you all ever a had to ABC do it? would also, they famously would pay sources money for, like, photos. Like, in a trial, they would pay one of the suspects money to give them photos of your days when the victim was still alive. And it's still all the same thing. It's paying. It's checkbook journalism. Yeah, and like paparazzi, that's how they make their money. They Absolutely. pay. They, they get paid for their photos. And you'll see this with People magazine magazine did this a lot. They would pay the Kardashians a large amount of money to have free access to their weddings, and then they would get lavish, positive treatment on the cover and inside. There was that kind of agreement, and it's truly not real journalism. So it's also got a poisonous effect in Africa. Sources had learned that you could control what got printed or not printed by offering money, where the journalists are actually impoverished. So they would offer money to either hold a story or to put it out. It works both ways when, once you allow it, once you open the door. Yet, if you're trying to get sources who are, let's say, marginalized, people who are in communities where there aren't a lot of resources, and you come from a community where there are resources. Isn't it only fair to say time is money for these people especially? Maybe they should be compensated for taking their time to talk to you if you're going to try to get across their point of view. You it think that's depends. possible? I think it just depends. The journalists themselves are ostensibly being paid for the work they're doing for the time they're putting in. So if you are asking people to give a lot of their time, which is often the case, not just a one-shot short interview, but giving a lot of their time to do some in-depth stories, 
and they are marginalized people, people in need. You know, this article that we're talking about did raise questions in my mind about could there be times when it is appropriate to compensate them in some way for the effort that they're putting in. I, I just had the opposite effect. I think the young woman who wrote this article we're talking about who had given money for a story where she was talking to impoverished people was simply justifying her own bad behavior, and I would fire her if I had been her boss. But she was doing There's, it for one yeah, special uh, coverage. It wasn't her so was her It was a special, it was one special project. She was working on the story in Charlottesville, Virginia, people who were White around on those awful days in 2017. And she was trying to get people to give her book length. She's working on a book length project, getting people to talk about what it was like to be suppressed, in effect, living in that community when the neo-Nazis descended upon them. So these were poor people. These were folks without resources. And she was going to get paid for this. So shouldn't she share that? No, she shouldn't. She gets paid for it because she's working on it full time. That means you accommodate yourself to the time of a poor person who, if he stopped working, would not get paid. So you go at night or on a weekend when they would not be working. You don't pay for their daycare. You let the kids come into the interview. That's what you're getting paid for, all those inconveniences. Would you ever talk to this woman now without getting paid? Hey, you paid them. Pay me, too. She is so polluted. That is a huge problem, I agree, on that side of the argument because then you have the people in the community going, well, how much did you get paid by that journalist? I got 50 yeah. bucks. Oh, I'm holding out for 80 bucks. I'm holding out for 100 bucks. You know, I'm not going to this... tell anything. Oh, I'm going to make my story juicier, right. so I'm going to make more money. And this story in which she's exposing everything because she's so ethically pure, she never tells us how much she paid. How much? What's your information worth? Well, her editor should have made her put that in. Yeah, this deals with the whole issue of expense accounts. I never actually bought anybody a drink at a bar as a part of an interview. I never bought anyone lunch or dinner. I mean, we didn't have expense accounts. So even a cup of coffee, I never crossed that line. But, I mean, it is difficult sometimes to get people to talk to you, especially poor people. If you're doing a story about someone who's starving, do you give them a sandwich? Yes, you do. I mean, come on, let's not be pure. So you buy them lunch and you pay for it. I didn't expense it because I didn't want to get in trouble with the editors, but I sure as hell did it. But now what about those reporters who are so ethical about this? It goes to what is often called participant observation journalism, or which arose out of the new journalism of Mm -hmm. the quote-unquote of the 70s, -hmm. where you're so engaged with these people, you're in effect living with them. But I remember the story of someone who saw a child terribly sick, living in filth on a mattress on the floor, the child of junkies. Uh, And the question was, would you take the child to the hospital? If you're the journalist and you're there, you can get the child to the hospital. But part of the story is the lack of access to medical care because they can't even get to the hospital. So you're tainting the story by your observation. What's the scientific principle of that? Again, this is being a purist. Yes, you take the kid to the hospital, and then you're writing the story that that kid would not have had a way yeah, the other sci- than that. The you, scientific you, you, yeah. principle is being a human being, yeah, a decent human being, and a journalist at the same time. It's tough, though. It I think tough. when you think of the photographers whose impulse is to raise the camera to the eye instead of to reach out the hand to the person who's been shot. That's part of the journalistic impulse. And so actually offering money, isn't that just the human side of it as opposed to the journalistic side of it? Mm. So you're saying, Rosemary, you can split the baby and if yeah. you can do something. Yeah, that's typically the issue with journalism. Either you completely do it or you completely don't do it. And real life isn't like that. I don't think buying a lunch for someone who you're interviewing, you both are eating a sandwich together, is the same as paying for information. That's the line you don't cross. 
You know, this goes to the code of ethics, whether a written one or just an assumed one in journalism. But one of the four fundamental principles of the code of ethics of society professional journalists is minimize harm. And I remember when that was actually being developed. The code was actually initially written by a guy named Bob Steele, a man from Indiana who was working then at the Pointer Institute. And the notion of minimize harm consistent with your truth-telling responsibility. If your fundamental responsibility is to seek the truth and report it fully, but minimize harm, recognizing that sometimes your reporting is going to create harm, but you try to minimize it and not intentionally hurt people who you're reporting. So minimizing harm in the case of somebody you're reporting on who is sick is, I guess, transporting to the hospital. It's an act of commission rather than omission. It's something you're doing, but I guess that's part of minimizing harm. Yeah, there was there were other aspects about minimizing harm. If there's a tragedy and lots of news outlets are going to be drawn to try to talk to the victims and their families of those outlets, and it's a terrible experience for the victims and their families that are also victims to over and over again be telling their stories. This isn't about being paid for those stories, but ways to minimize harm would be, can the Saratogian and the Gazette and the Times Union work together and to say, let's try to interview these people together so that they're not forced to retell their story all at once? Or are we going to be the competitors that we are in our business and say, you know, sorry, we're going to get in there first and we hope we get an interview that you don't get? So. That's a really interesting point. That actually is made by, uh, there's a nonprofit news organization called The Trace, which has as its mission covering gun violence. We were reading this as we were preparing this, an article about The Trace opening bureaus in Chicago and Philadelphia, and that is how they define minimizing harm. Can you actually share news stories so that victims of crime, uh, the people who are, say, the families in Waco around the mass shooting there, for example, don't have to tell all the reporters. Is that realistically, is that feasible? Can we do that? You know, it's, it's an interesting concept, but often you'll find a victim will be more comfortable in a one-on-one -on -one interview or they don't want to sit before all the lights and the cameras because you, you know the electronic media is going to want in on this as well. I agree with the notion that it must be traumatizing to retell the story, but I'd so, like to see it in practice. So with my lifelong suspicion of news executives, that sounds like an argument for cutting your costs rather than helping victims. Everybody does not talk to the same victim of crime. You talk to a whole bunch of different people. They're not usually re-traumatized. And I don't see the harm of it. I, I really think we need to go do journalism in the old way. You need fewer people if you're going to cooperate, so you cut your costs. I think it's cost-cutting, not helping. Oh, I think that's that cynical. No, it is cynical. I th I'm sorry. I think that there is an ethical issue here. And we saw it in this community when we had the Unabomber. I was thinking Remember? the same thing. Of course. Yeah. You know, we saw two dozen reporters who gathered outside the home of the Unabomber's brother and sister-in-law yes, and mom, actually, in, uh, was it in Schenectady or yeah, Rotterdam? Yeah, it, it was in Niskiuna. In Niskiuna. Uh -huh. And, uh, yeah, David Kuczynski and his wife, for I don't know, weeks, they kind of held the family hostage inside the place, and I don't think they wanted to talk to anyone at that point, but eventually... <laughs> they weren't they, trying to get paid, either. They definitely weren't trying to get paid. They just happened to get caught in the middle of this well, They also story. got the FBI reneged on a deal with them, and they had the worst lawyer in the world who did not foresee that this would happen. Major terror story and he doesn't get them away doesn't warn them about it so yeah the press acted badly in that but there was blame to share well in look that at case. this this one isn't a, a case of blame I think but I'm thinking about the horrible limo crash the worst 
accident in the country in, in 20 some years and Scahari that was in County. Our, Scahari County was in our community people. 20, right. 20, 20 people including a couple of people that just were standing in the parking lot so there were numerous victims but there were some that lost four daughters in-laws mm-hmm. you know fiancés it was and so, there and so those, there's of... going to be a repeat of trying to talk to those people. And it's up to those people to decide if they want to talk. Some might want to. Some might not want to. But how traumatizing and is people that? With no the trauma with the was the accident that killed their relatives. It wasn't journalists talking to them. And their talking resulted in the total upset of that case, which ended up with justice in the end. That, that was a good, yes. You have to talk. You have to bring it out to make things happen. But having the people camped outside of your house, having different news organizations knocking on your door, that is traumatizing. You were a private citizen. You just went through this horrible, horrible loss. And now the added trauma is being bugged by journalists. <laughs> but it is, I mean, to Rosemary's point, if it weren't for the journalists staying on top of that, I wonder what kind of justice would have come. You know what kind. The prosecutor had settled it. No jail time for the yes. head of that. It was injustice. And the way you solve injustice does cause more pain to people who, who suffer the affront in the first place. Hmm. One of the reasons we give to people when we first approach them after they've had a loss like this is we want to get the story of the person who died out. Tell us about them. And I think that does offer comfort early on but the timing has to be right and the repetitive nature of that can not let people go on with their lives you do try to be as sensitive as you can if you're a reporter in that situation in part because that's the right thing to do but also because that is basically how you keep the door from being slammed in your face so if you can get the story and help people tell it that's great. Sometimes, though, what you get is no get away. And it, it, what is not typical, I don't think, the example in Niskayuna of the Unabomber's family notwithstanding, what's not typical is what you see in movies and on TV of the crowd of reporters yelling and jostling and pushing people aside. That's untypical, except where you have politicians who are trying to escape you. But for, with ordinary citizens, usually we're, we're not as ugly as journalists are often portrayed. So I I have friends who covered the Rwandan massacre where a million people were killed in a few months in a terrible genocide. And reporting on that, imagine that trauma. You know, you watch your family machete to death and now here's a reporter talking to you. And they did it. And it wasn't like you don't go in and demand the information. The people have a right to know, tell me your information. I mean, you don't, oh, you're don't. you not a not. jerk like the right. TV reporters right. you're talking about. You sit there, you gather people who have been through the trauma together to bolster each other. You give them lots of time. You let them tell the story. The DART Center, which deals with trauma journalism, has lots of methods for doing this right. But to not do it at all for the sake of the victims is not journalism. We're not working oh, nobody's for the Nobody's saying not victims. to do it at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you are. You're saying no, we, I... we won't talk to people. We'll we'll do one interview with the victims and then share it. That's not good journalism. Not trying to say that. <laughs> to clarify I'm what I'm trying to say would be if there's instances where there is a trauma, they're private citizens, and lots of media are trying to get not the first interview. To, to, yes, like get the first interview, get a story. That there might be ways that hmm. we haven't really been thinking about lately. Hmm. Yet we haven't thought of yet. 
about ways that some of that could be possibly shared. If folks, you have I don't have the answer this, for it though. Media at wamc.org is how you send us email and give us your thoughts about journalistic ethics. We're going to talk a little bit about political journalism now. We got to do that because it is the political season, and we've seen some interesting changes. For example, Ron DeSantis, whose campaign for president has not been going well, actually sat down for an interview with somebody outside the right wing bubble. That is, he uh, was interviewed by. Jake Tapper on CNN, which is unusual because Ron DeSantis has been denigrating the press uh, for a couple of years now, saying about journalists, they don't care about the people of the state. They don't care about this community. They want to use storms and destruction of the storms to advance their agenda. They don't care about the lives here. Speaking of of journalists, and now suddenly his campaign's not going well. Ron DeSantis sits down with Jake Tapper. Speaking of cynical, isn't it fair of a journalist to point that out to a politician to say, "What are you doing here?" When you claim that we are not truth tellers, I'm sorry. It was just 15 minutes as well. It wasn't. It wasn't <laughs> a really long interview. I mean, Tapper didn't get a chance to do much follow up, especially it was a breaking news day where we had news of an imminent another indictment of the former president Donald Trump. So. I would have liked longer and, and to give Tapper more breathing room to ask the questions he really probably wanted to ask. DeSantis is notoriously against freedom of information. He His administration has declared that he has executive privilege. He doesn't really have to abide by Florida's state in, um, freedom of information laws. We're not allowed to know what the governor's doing, what his schedule is like. It's And, and those are legislatively approved restrictions on people's right to know. He's terrible. People have filed they want to know about his travel experience. That apparently is off limits now. I mean, the, the basic information that reporters ask about, not just a politician, but someone who's in office, he's not distributing that information. He doesn't, he's above that. I didn't see the interview. I only read about it, but I still have an opinion about it. <laughs> and it seemed to me that DeSantis's camp decided that this was a strategically smart thing to do. It was 15 minutes of free advertising for Ron DeSantis on, oh, on wow. a CNN. I, okay, the cynic again. I love that he got his comeuppance. This is a man who tried to pass unsuccessfully so far a law in the Florida legislature that would just detooth the First Amendment. I can't imagine that it would pass muster in the Supreme Court, but he tried that. He hates the press, and he needed it, and he used it, and he did not do well in that interview. I did go back and watch it. His whole campaign is built on attacking wokeness. So Tapper asked him, what is wokeness? He goes, yeah, I'm having a hard time explaining that to folks. They don't get it. <laughs> it, it reminded me, I, I've said this, it reminded me of Ted Kennedy not being able to explain why he wanted to be president. It knocked him out of the race. DeSantis got hurt by that interview, and I love it that it was the press. I do. Mm-hmm. So you think that there will be repercussions to him? From Absolutely. Not, with the, not within like the Republicans, because they don't care about the so truth. Maybe that's what I'm what, thinking. It was yeah. exposure. If you didn't like him before, you didn't like him even more after that. It would be hard to support a vote for him, other than if you're a, a maggot who who can no longer vote for Trump because of his increasing right. legal problems. But an a independent maggot, M A G A. Oh, oh maggot, maggot. Oh, <laughs> me too. I heard the T at the end. Maggot. I don't know if it was Freudian or no, it's not Freudian. You know, what we're not seeing at all are sit-down interviews with reporters who are writers. You know, you're, you're seeing major politicians are avoiding serious long-term conversations with a magazine writer or, or a newspaper writer who might do something of length and might be able to get more in-depth. That's just not happening anymore. Well, the fact-checking is what stops a lot of these candidates because they know they're going to be held to account for the misstatements, uh, to put it. 
well, generously. Increasingly TV fact checks, too. They're not doing it because they don't get as many eyes in a New Yorker article or a New York Times article even than you do on CNN or MSNBC or Fox. Or public broadcasting. By the way, the right. House, the Republican-controlled House, folks, if you are listening to this on public radio, as uh, you would be, I guess, the House Appropriations Subcommittee is trying to zero out public broadcasting. Now, I'm, I'm sure that the Senate won't let this happen, but still, it's from $535 million, the Corporation of Public Broadcasting proposal to zero. This would actually have an impact on not only Big Bird, but on uh, stations around the country. It's a pretty big deal, and it is an effort by the I think it's more, don't you think, a statement than an impact. It's just an effort by the House Republicans to say, we don't want to have any money go to any journalists anywhere. Isn't this not new? Yeah, this has happened for years, and it never actually got to the point where they did defund public broadcasting. So, Yeah, and I don't think there's the animus towards public broadcasting that the Republicans think there is. Um, I'm sitting here in a public broadcasting station, so I may be biased, but I don't hear that when I go out among the real people, that they hate that, you know, that antiques roadshow. Uh, <laughs> or even the PBS NewsHour. It's hard to really argue that that's a biased publication. <laughs> Well, if anybody watches it, the problem is it's so understated by comparison to the broadcast networks and to Fox that there's a, such a limited audience for it. But it's part of the hostility to actual reporting that you see. And I have to say, we try very hard as journalists to be fair, but the assault on the truth it comes primarily from one side of the political debate. Uh, it is not ac accurate to say they all do it. It's, it's not true. Uh, the fact is, it is the right wing, it's the Republican Party that is trying to kill public broadcasting, that is trying to shut down fair reporting, that is fundamentally basing its argument on lies. And that is not a biased statement. That is factual. Uh, but that puts journalists on the side of one side in a political debate. And that's a very hard thing for us to deal with, right? <laughs> and it's always been the case. I mean, we talk about the repeated attacks on public broadcasting. It's always come from the right. And often you know, they'll trot poor Big Bird out to a congressional hearing to defend himself. And it is something we get caught up in. And this, we, we want to avoid the both sidesism of it. Big Bird doesn't actually appear. Yeah, what are his, what he? are Big Bird's pronouns? Is my question. Really, <laughs> <Is it laughs> <Ilya> him? <laughs> All right, we are out of time and have to let it go at that. But we, again, welcome your thoughts. Media at WAMC.org is how you interact with us and tell us what you think about this program where we try to talk about finding and telling the truth. It's the Media Project. Rosemary Armeo, Barbara Lombardo, Judy Patrick, and I'm Rex Smith. Thanks to our producer, Dave Cena, and to you folks for joining us this week once again on the Media Project. They organized a union to get a living wage. They joined with other actors upon a living stage. Now newspapermen are such interesting people. When they know they've got a people's fight to wage. The Media Project is a national production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. This week's projectors include Judy Patrick, former editor of the Daily Gazette and vice president for editorial development for the New York Press Association. Rosemary Armeo, investigative journalist and adjunct professor at the University at Albany former editor of the Saratogi and an adjunct professor at the University at Albany, Barbara Lombardo, and former Times Union editor and current Upstate American Substack columnist, Rex Smith. You can listen to The Media Project anytime at wamcpodcast.org or anywhere you get your podcast. 
I'm your producer, David Gustina. Thanks for listening. Now publishers are such interesting people. It could be prostitution, I don't know. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, circulation, ting-a-ling-a-ling, advertising, get those readers, get that payoff. What a headache, what a mess. Oh, publishers are such interesting people. Let's give free cheers for freedom of the press. <laughs>